Hi, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Crow Reads, hosted in partnership with Read Alberta. Crow Reads is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. I'm Rayanne Haynes, a published author and cultural producer. In this podcast, I interview intersectional writers, publishers, agents, educators, and editors with a focus on Alberta creatives, all with a lens to discover more about their work and their lived experiences. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I and being a part of the conversation. This episode is supported by Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Community Foundation. Taproot Edmonton publishes curiosity-driven stories, topical newsletters, and locally focused podcasts, all in the service of informing Edmontonians about their community. Taproot publishes a weekly arts roundup, gathering up what's happening locally in theater, dance, the visual arts, the literary arts, and more. It's curated by Fonda Mithrush, a veteran of Edmonton's art scene and co-host of I Don't Get It, a fellow member of the Alberta Podcast Network. You can subscribe to the Arts Roundup for free at taprootedmonton.ca. The Well Endowed Podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation is hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink and produced by Lisa Pruden. It explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. excited about the conversation that we're going to have today with my guest, Micheline Mailer. Dr. Micheline Mailer was Calgary's Poet Laureate from 2016 to 2018. Her latest poetry collection is The Bad Wife um, and Little Wild Heart, uh, both through U of A Press. Uh, uh, Little Wild Heart was long listed for both the Pat Lowther and the Raymond Souster Awards. She recently won the um, Lois Hole Award for Editorial Excellence in Alberta, and she teaches creative writing at Mount Royal University and has been recently translated into Farsi. And this is a little tiny bio, because I know Micheline Wells. She worked on my recent book, uh, and she does incredible things in the community and is a very, very busy, busy person. Um, thanks for joining us, Micheline. Thank you, Rayanne. I'm, I, your book is just as wonderful as this one. So I feel very much in reverence of this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, well, I'm excited about our conversation. I mean, I, I met you a long time ago when I was running the poetry festival and you were poet laureate and we were trying to figure out how to connect each other and how to get you to the festival during your busy busy time. Um, and so I, and I have your, uh, your little wild heart book as well. I think you're just a brilliant writer. I love your voice. I love how you use your voice in such unique ways. Um, mm -hmm. but why don't we jump in? We'll jump into our questions. Your newest collection, the bad wife is an intimate firsthand account of how to ruin a marriage. And this is what it says on the book. Uh, it's a story of divorce, 
love and what should have been told in a brave and unflinching voice. The mm-hmm. collection for me, I'm, you know, I've, I've read this and, and for me, it's, I feel like it's written from a place of power, immediacy and dark humor. And you share such a, such vulnerable pieces in ways that I think swarm and swamp the reader while at the same time removing blame of self or other and any type of wallowing or self-recrimination. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the importance of this distance in writing um, confessional, confessional or vulnerable work. Oh, distance in confessional work. Okay. Um, and then the word recrimination, that one stood out to me because mm-hmm. I definitely think that this is a book of recrimination where I'm just pointing at myself and saying, I fucked this up. And I think that in that way it becomes, and that is the way that it becomes immediate because what happens is, is usually when we screw up, we either have two kinds of responses where you're like, Whoa, that wasn't me. Wasn't me. It was something else. Or else we point directly at ourselves And um, I think this follows into the question that you asked a little bit later about gender. But I think that women have a tendency to point at themselves and say, that was my fault. And say, that was me. I I did this. So in terms of self-recrimination, I don't don't know. I think I outed myself as completely guilty in this. Mm -hmm. Um, As for the distance of removing self-blame or wallowing, I do agree with that because it's, um, I think that in confessional work, you know, what is the purpose of confessional work? You know, and and this question comes up a lot about when, when is something a diary entry that we should keep to ourselves? And when does some form of writing through the understanding or writing through the thinking become fit for public consumption Mm -hmm. and with poetry you know, I think that the confessional becomes important when the audience can see themselves in the reflection, right? When there's an elevation to, this is not just about me or just about this circumstance, but it is anybody that's been in this circumstance. It is anyone that has experienced this sort of, you know, tragedy, travesty, or, you know, as you said, dark humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that there's dark humor in everything. I think it's, I think that our lives are hysterically tragic. Like it's funny and tragic and wonderful and awful all at the same time. Like I don't, I don't see anything as compartmentalized. It's one big hodgepodge of um, paradoxical sorts of things. So you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, who can you laugh at? I mean, if you're standing there and you've cut your own arm off and you're bleeding, like this is where Monty Python is so hilarious. It's just a flesh wound, right? So, and I think that everybody's life is that hilarious. Like, I just think that the dark humor is the way to go. And I don't know if I, I've thought about that in terms of culture. You know, my father is, um, is uh, a, a British immigrant and um, I just think, Maybe I learned that from him because, you know, that, that thing about Pink Floyd hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way, uh, that, that song lyric. And I think, yeah, I probably got some of that from him because, you know, my husband, who is not British, he's Jewish. He doesn't have any of that. He's like, 
that's really weird, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Sure. So, so it it could be some sort of cultural thing, but, uh, but the idea about um, elevating our personal circumstance to the universal is what confessional work should do when it's at its best. And um, that should be in the consciousness of the writer that is doing the confessional work. How does this become universal? Right. And what would you say to someone if they are struggling with that, of, of trying to move beyond that consciousness of personal to universal? Is there, I mean, it's something that I certainly had to work through in, in my collection and, do you have, you know, as your, as your educator, editor brain, do you have ways that you can kind of look at that work and say, you know, this is how you can move it past? Yeah, I think that writing in the heat of the moment is great. And then you have to shove that thing in the drawer until you can look at it as the witness. Mm. So if you, if you take, you know, write it in the heat of the moment, sure. Write out those revenge poems and those, oh, I'm dying because my somebody left me or my something happened or blah, blah, blah. And just shove it in the drawer until you can look at it as the witness. And then when you can look at it as the witness, then I think that you can have that, that um, judgment to be able to tell, would this have helped And I mean, sometimes even knowing that someone else has gone through something that you've felt or something that you've experienced is enough. Someone else has felt this pain and sometimes that's enough. And I mean, this life is some, it is weirdly hysterically funny and tragic and everything all at the same time. And sometimes just having that little bit of, I'm connected to another being on the planet because they felt something or they've experience something that I have, it's, it's enough to keep us going sometimes. And, and, um, so, so my advice is shove it in a drawer to tell you can, until you can look at it as the witness. Yeah. I think that's excellent advice. And maybe that's what I felt when I was reading your poems and thinking, you know, the self-recrimination has been removed and maybe it's because I was reading it as the voice of a witness listening to you sharing it as the voice of a witness, because I could feel this, like, yeah, you were looking at it and describing it versus that emotional outburst of it happening. Brilliantly written. I love, <laughs> I was, I have to say, I mean, I was sitting here reading this book um, and just thinking, God damn, I wish I could write like that. I mean, you're, <laughs> You're so good. You're so good. Well, Brian, you can write like that. Oh, and you whatever. know, that was the worst thing about taking your book at Frontenac House this year was that I was like, oh, damn. Now my book is going to be beside her book for every fucking award. <laughs> like, damn it. Well, I, thanks for saying that. I'm, you know, I'm blushing. Um, but no. <laughs> There's no contest in my in what I think you can do. I think you're brilliant. Um, the the first half of the book, the way you've written that, the way you've formatted and shaped this book is really unique. So, the first half of the book, I read them more like prose poems. They're broader. They're you know much more depth, much more um, go into much more depth um, in that kind of chunky way. And then the second half of the book. 
uh, beginning on page 40, is one long poem titled Omen Calla Lilies. So I'm wondering a little bit about your process in shaping the book in this way and what compelled you to break that form um, of the first the first half or, you know, did you write Calla Lilies first and then the others came or how 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 did you go about shaping this? (laughs) The first poem that I wrote in this book is actually called Inclement Weather. Mm. And it's on page uh, 36. It, I love that one. Poem, yeah, it's the poem that precedes Calla Lilies. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know the answer to these things. Mm. Um, because I don't know about you, but sometimes poems aren't a conscious decision first. Sometimes they dictate how they want to be written and you just have to go with it. And so I feel like Calla Lilies was one of those poems that came to me and dictated the way that it wanted to be written. And it came in small fragments and it came with, you know, this Calla Lilies is very much a reflection of the way that my brain looks from the inside out. Like it's just like really fragmented and really, it ties together in the end, but it's, you know, getting through it. It's kind of like, Whoa, this is really jumpy, but that's the way that my thoughts are. Mm. And it came to me as it dictated, it wanted to be written. And I mean, I don't think that writers should fight that. And I don't think, and I think that all writers who have been really serious about their practice have had this experience where all of a sudden, it's, it's like the God in the machine is in your blood and you've got to grab that pen or pencil or computer and you've got to write it right now. And maybe it doesn't look like anything that you've ever seen before. And maybe it, it's just a mystery where these things come from, the phrasing or the wording or the images themselves. But um, I think you just have to go with it and just let it dictate to you how, how it should be written and, and, Anyone who is a serious writer will know this feeling, this this mystery that exists in the creative process that that doesn't have an intellectual decision at the start of it. Yeah. So, yeah, and I I when you when you bring up the the idea of like the small fragments, um, you know, I wonder how many of us look at these and go, oh no, these are small fragments these are each going to be separate poems and then what is the well I guess how does the body tell us that no they're not they're meant to be connected they're meant to be one long one long piece and that they just come out in these short bursts these fragmented moments yeah um and did you have, did you kind of have that where you sat with that and went, oh, actually, these aren't no. going to be all, no? I, I didn't have that thing, but it's partially because the more I know about creative writing, the less I feel rule bound. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you read something like Sappho and then you read something like Dylan Thomas, those are very different things, but both of them are poems. Right. So what happens is, is that, you know, I think that it's important as poets to investigate what the possibilities are and then be willing to 
suspend all disbelief and write the thing that punches you in the heart. You know, if, if, if I told Charles Bukowski that he had to write a formal sonnet, I'm pretty sure his work would be shit. <laughs> you know, but because he seizes what is his own stance in the world and allows it to flow through him in his beautiful, catastrophic way, it becomes just as valuable as a Shakespearean sonnet, but for a completely different reason. And I, I think that being too rule bound in creation is a, is a mistake. However, that being said, if you can't tell a sonnet from a villanelle, you have more work to do. Because uh-huh. it's, not, it's not the emperor's new clothes. You don't get to walk in naked and just go, look at me, I'm so valuable, I don't know anything. That's not enough. You have to do both. You have to be a good reader and you have to also understand that creativity is a god that it does not operate by the rules of the earth, that it defies gravity and it defies physics and that it may do something that you don't understand that is completely magical. And you just have to say, I'm going to go with that. Right. Hmm. But I like your, your intention in saying, you know, even if you're never going to use the forms, learn them and understand the difference between them. Um, And I think that's a really important thing for any emerging writer to hear because, you know, I think a lot of the time history gets ignored or lost, you know, in this, in this craving for the new and the modern and the most interesting new form. We let go of those other forms that kind of came before and paved the way and made the, made all of these things possible. So that was a teaching moment. <laughs> um, so um, in your essay, you wrote an essay for Quill and Choir um, about confessional poetry. It's, it's a brilliant essay if, if people want to um, read it. Quill and, it's on Quill and Choir. But in that essay, you talk about sexism within the genre, I'm using finger quotes, of confessional poetry and how Philip Larkin was in your words, not ready to play at the grown-up table and sacrifice bone, blood, even life's breath, how Plath and Sexton pushed against normal gendered expectations of the time by gambling life itself. I mean, that's heavy. So can you talk a bit about how you see that gendered boundary in confessional poetry and as it plays out in modern writing, in our in this new modern writing? When you say modern writing, you mean contemporary writing now? Yes, sorry, yes, contemporary. I just want to make sure you're not uh, talking about modernist writing of uh, Elliot and Pound. Okay, sorry. Uh, Okay, so pushes against boundaries. Okay, so confessional. So let's add another aspect to the confessional. So not only does it have to be something that universally translates, like, okay, my experience is a microcosm for the macrocosm of someone else's experience, but it can't, not only that, but, you know, confessional 
it has to push against the norms and norms change as we all know norms change you know the normal of of the time of, of sylvia plath and ann sexton was in their time and space and i mean in middle america well and so plath was in britain but in the middle of the 20th century you know, the ideas of, of being a wife and being a woman at that time were very different than they are now, for example. And what they were pushing against was, look, I'm rejecting this situation. I'm, I'm rejecting this. And then now what we do is we go through their, their thing and they, and they were pushing against it. <clears throat> and they were saying, look, I'm so against these norms that, you know, it's depressing me. It's it's creating this problem and I'm going to kill myself. And, you know, Philip Larkin wasn't going to do that. He was just like, I have blue balls and I am up all night, you know? And so, you know, there's this different thing. And that's why when we think, you know, the first thing we think of when we think of confessional poetry is we think about Anne Sexton, we think about Sylvia Plath because she stuck her head in the oven. Right. <laughs> and she, she took herself out. Like, so that's what happens is like the, the stakes are elevated in a way that, um, doesn't, you know, it just, just, it just doesn't equate it. So that's what happens with that sort of confessional poetry. And so what I was supposing or, or positing, pardon me, mm. what I was positing in that was that, um, Philip Larkin just didn't have the same sort of, investment in it that Anne Sexton or Sylvia Plath did. That's not to say that Philip Larkin's work wasn't confessional. It just had a different sort of stakes attached to it. Now, if I go forward and I say, what is happening now? And I say, what is happening that pushes against our own boundaries? You know, now we've got some really interesting things going on, especially in Canadian work and especially when it has to do with confessional works. So, you know, what am I pushing against? I'm pushing against cuckolding my husband. I did that. I'm, that's shitty. I should admit it. And I did. I, I admit I did a shitty thing. Here we go. You know, in your own work, you've pushed against the things that, well, you know, you pushed against motherhood. You pushed against a few other things as well in, in that book that do the same thing. It kind of challenges the norms of now and what it means to be good or normal or right. But if we also look like now we've got some really exciting male voices in Canadian literature that are doing those same things. Like I could easily think about Randy Lundy's book, Field Notes for the Self, where he's just talking about alcoholism and yeah. pushing against, you know, doing those, those things in a way and like admitting. And then not only that, but doing it with such beautiful sentence structure that I just, I have to stop myself and look at his sentences with some sort of aesthetic gratitude for the cadence and elegance of his work. And then, you know, I could also think about Billy Ray Belcourt, you know, who's pushing us all kinds of things like, look at me, I'm on grinder having random sex. Look at this. And my body is a landscape. Like, yeah. like it's just beautiful. So yeah. the work itself is pushing against new norms. And I think that that's also a job of the confessional as it evolves is to push against whatever new norms are erupting and to say, this is different. This is different. Like, so, you know, being a confessional poet can be one of the most 
punk ass ways to be a badass rebel. So because you're pushing against the norms. Yeah. So is it gendered? Not necessarily anymore, but I think that it has roots that consider those elements. Okay. So does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I appreciate how you frame it because, you know, a lot of my lens is very focused on, um, gender and, um, uh, removing things from the frame of patriarchy and what does that look like now? And, you know, what does that mean for shaping as we move forward? Well, why don't I ask you to read us something that will reframe how we look at, at certain things. Um, I'll get you to tell us the poem that you've chosen um, and just maybe, you know, a little bit about it before you, before you launch in. Right now I'm going to read the opening poem titled How to Be a Bad Wife. The original book title was called How to Be a Bad Wife, and there's many instructional poems in the book about how to be a bad wife, because, you know, there's not just one way. And uh, then my dear friend Bruce Hunter said to me, I think the title of this book is The Bad Wife, so um, I changed it, made it a little shorter. But this opening poem is titled How to Become a Bad Wife. Start with the archetype of innocence. Start as the lawful good. Let the kraken dice fall on good favor. Start with a long white sundress, strappy sandals, and bring a puppy. Flirt. Look wide-eyed at the world with brown swirling fingers. Point at dreams and purple mountain bluebells. Use brown sugar in your coffee. Sweeten everything. Once you are sure you are being followed by the man, let the tan of your ankle show. Hide the barnyards of your life in the hem of your skirt. Daub the light pink eyeshadow from Shopper's Drug Mart in the corner of your lids. Appear fresh. You must look good to make the effects really last before you turn dark. Turn dark after the vows. Wait until the firstborn and the secondborn. Secure your sweetness in their DNA. Then experience the rock slide of your own heart. Skiff across doubt's surface. Slide slowly. Gather dirt and wounds. Stay calm and frightening a temple guardian of the heart. Envision lizards running on water. Panic at your own life. Find yourself someone to talk to. A nice professor much older than you. Always safe. Go somewhere with coffee. Be sure the children are with the babysitter. Start sinking, not skimming. Become an unreliable narrator. Find danger as water invades your ears, sunlight loyal above you. See patterns ripple across the surface and shake. Here is the diaphanous. Find yourself drowned. Utter your own epitaph from underneath the seas. Here lies, here lies the bad wife. Wow. Uh, I mean, what a poem, what a poem, what a piece. Uh, there's so many lines in here that really affected me. And I don't know why, but this one got me. It says, once you are sure, or once sure you are being followed by the man, let the tan of your ankle show. 
it just felt so momentous in a way that, you know, it almost, it feels like this is a, a, an instruction that we women have been told from childhood, right? How to give that little, that little bit of ourselves to, to, you know, in, entangle the man. Um, but then how you shift it appear fresh before you turn dark. Um, you're so open in this poem. You're so open in it. And you're so, you are so, as we said before, a witness um, and, but so vulnerable at the same time. And I want to ask you, when you started writing this and you knew it was going to be a book and you knew it was going to be out in the world that you would be reading these pieces, what did you have to go through within yourself? Well, I started writing this because um, I needed to make sense of it. And I think that that happens with a lot of us writers where we need to do things to make sense of the world. And um, I needed to make sense of what happened. I needed to somehow write an elegy for for the 20 years that I spent being this man's wife. I needed to write that elegy, not even for someone else's public consumption, but for myself. And the thing is, is that, you know, openness, that's a, that's a completely different sort of question, I suppose. I think that we all have some degree of openness that we're comfortable with. And like, I'm pretty comfortable walking around inside out. Like, uh, I don't, you know, as my husband says, WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get. So, you know, there's, there's no problem with being open. Like I'm willing to admit my foibles and all sorts of things and just carry on. So, you know, exposing this to me felt like, I felt like if I could talk to another woman who had this experience, it would probably be worth it because someone else somewhere has been carrying around a big bag of guilt, just like I carried around a big bag of guilt and, and lived in their own self-destruction for a while because of it. And I felt like if you could release it, let it, let it be released. And, uh, that, that was, that was the situation. Just let it, let it go. I didn't know I was writing a book. I had no idea. Mm. I had a, uh, you know, I'm kind of analog. So I had a laundry basket full of poems and, and I handed it to George Elliott Clark and said, George, is this a book? Mm. <laughs> and he said, I believe this is a book. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks to George Elliott Clark, who helped me make a mess of, uh, you know, make the mess that was fragments into, into something. And I mean, I think that that's what good writer friends are for and good, good writer friends will help you piece together what, what the fragments are. I also appreciate what you said about, um, because I think this touches on a lot of questions around this concept of concessional poetry and who you're writing it for. And does it always have to mean more? And does it always have to be, you know, for, um, you know, to, to help everybody else. And, um, you know, you touched on that saying that you were, you were writing this for yourself to make sense of it and that the exposing of yourself didn't have to be about 
others, right? Uh, I mean, if it helps someone or let, you know, lets them see themselves in it, that's great, but we don't necessarily have to be writing from a place of this will do good for everybody else. It can be just about writing it for yourself. Right. That, that leads, I know you asked me to read a second poem later, yeah. but it, it leads that the answer to that or the, the follow up with what you just said reminds me of a line that's in inclement weather, which I was going to read later anyway. So I'm going to read it now instead. Okay, perfect. Inclement weather. Have you seen the sky turn on a rocky cliff face? Cobalt silk morph to a dappled gray hide. Seen the sky muddle beyond metaphor. Remember, I loved you spectacularly. From the time I spied you mowing the lawn in your underwear to another time your body slipped in the air, turned and sprung off the edge of our vacation boat. Backflips for the children's circus tricks turns of impatience and longing while hours sat peacefully across inhabited rooms. CBC and the speakers droning the news almost the same as yesterday. So samey is the turning of the world, so full of human nature churning. These days, smudged to years, spread soft and grass green. Let's not forget none of it was a waste. Let's not forget the mercury moodiness of weather over the slim sliced schist jammed sidelong into the continent. Our marriage was here for the millennia of our lives. It too has a drift, a motion told in geologic time, a fault line. I have felt the color of your mood in my breast. The way you despise me now tramples down the highway, punches hooves into my chest but I have not forgotten your beauty or the lilies you found at Safeway late on Mother's Day, the sun-bleached glacial tint of your eyes, the talks we hushed in the bathroom, private and loving, while our children slept in night-dimmed rooms, hallways away, safe then from me, from us. There is much to mourn and maybe even more to say, but now silence needs the length of time, the forge of memory. I have not forgotten the way the clouds scud off mountaintops and shift the whole sky, the same way tides scramble oceans. You will never be wrong in our children's DNA. Mm. We will have all of time to sit in those cells patiently together, all the stories of our past still in synchronicity. Let the re those remembrances be bomb enough for what has become of our bombed out home, empty of my things and the rhythms we kept. Tell your son you loved me. Keep once inside. Mm. All the sky is still in motion. Did you see the weather shift? Even now, thunderheads might break into blue. Mm. So it's, it's the element of, huh. but now silence needs a length of time, the forge of memory. So that's what happens with, with poems is that uh, they need to sit in silence for a while and forge themselves so that you can become the witness to them. Yeah. And relationships too. And all sorts of things. All sorts of things. As uh, Anne Lamott says, everything is better when you turn it off and turn it back on again. 
including us. Yeah. It's a, this is such a beautiful poem. I love it. Um, I felt the color of your mood in my breast. Wow. What a, I mean, so many gut punching lines in this. Thank you for deciding to read it. Uh, well, okay, Micheline, um, you're, you're an editor with Frontenac House, professor in the English department at Mount Royal University, previous poet laureate of Calgary, past writer in residence at the Calgary Public Library. And those are just a few of your roles. You are a tour de force uh, with a very distinct and unmistakable uh, voice. And I want to know how, how does your editing and academic voice inform your writing? And have you ever felt pressured or compelled to shift your voice? Uh, I don't know if you've met me, but no one can pressure me to do anything that I'm not going to want to do. I tend to be a very, fairly disagreeable human being, um, not one prone to an immense amount of peer pressure. So um, my voice is what it is. And what does my voice come from? I mean, I think, you know, voice in each book shifts. I think that um, we can have a lifetime voice. Like if one thinks about um, Berryman or Ginsburg or Bukowski, I mean, there's a certain element of it that that doesn't shift, but but voice can shift. Yeah, because voice is a stance that comes about in each book, and I mean, I'm sure you've written more than one book, and you definitely don't have the same voice in each book, right? So voice no. is something that shifts. Um, and what does my academics and editing have to do with anything? Do I feel pressure? No, only from myself. I've never been a great people pleaser. Um, then the other thing about it is uh, you ask about what can an author do? What can they look for in editing their own work before beginning the submission process? I think that it's really important to recognize that even a poetry book has, should have a narrative arc, mm. that it's not just a, um, a got-junk basket of, of stuff you've collected, that it should have its own narrative arc and that it should have some sort of um, invitation and, and climax and relief. You know, it, it needs all of those things. So if you're if you're editing a poetry book, you know, consider those things. Mm -hmm. Does does your opening begin as an invitation? Do you reach a, a tension or a climax? Are you pushing against thoughts or ideas or societal norms or whatever the case may be in a way that that produces some innovation or, or inventive thinking and then somehow comes to some sort of uh, resolution like so so think about a poetry book as its own sort of narrative arc um don't underestimate style you know if, if i say to you if i say you know what are your what are your thoughts on poetics what are you what, what are you doing with what are you doing in this poetic line and it's not really a poetic line because it's a chopped up sentence. I'd suggest that you go back to, you know, learning some more craft, mm -hmm. you know, craft, craft and style are, are underestimated. 
you know, too many people think, well, I'm going to write down my thoughts and feelings and memories and it's going to be fine. And it's, well, yeah, it's fine. It's adequate, but it's not exceptional. So what are you doing? What are you doing that's exceptional? Right. So comes back to that, doesn't it? Always. Um, and the idea of that, the, the book of poetry should begin with an invitation. I don't think I've ever really heard it explained in that way before. That's a really good, that's a good, really good way of explaining it. Begin it like you would any other uh, writing process with an invitation to the reader to join you. The invitation of what this arc will be about. Great. Thank you. Let's move back to the book, to The Good Wife. You reference the crow and the magpie and the fox, um, etc. in in this in this book, and when I was reading it, I, I you know I felt all these connections between animal and body, animal and body, and I don't know if that's just what I took out of it, but in the poem "Become," you write lines: um, "The crow becomes me in the." field after she takes the songbird's wing and also I do not see his response to my woman body cloaked as my feather self so I molt violet and then it carries on I feel that you are the crow in this collection am I right and why the crow what what was the connection for you between animal body wife I think for me in this, the crow is a shapeshifter who is you, who is of you, who is, is the world, who is of the world. You know, if you think about um, the crow in terms of indigenous culture or in terms of uh, pagan omen, a crow represents many things. It represents life, death, mystery, magic, intelligence the trickster mm-hmm. the shapeshifter you know i'm going to i'm going to also suppose that the crow also probably represents what nietzsche calls the abyss you know stare into the abyss and the abyss stares back well the crow is the abyss you know the crow stares back and the crow brings things the crow brings brings and takes brings gifts takes life you know, all sorts of things. So for me, the crow is just very much that, that space where, you know, we're, it's, we live in mystery. We constantly live in a state of, of unknowing. So how do you get comfortable with that? And I mean, as the crow comes and goes, then those things happen. I think that you can observe the crow as, <laughs> as mystery personified. Excellent. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to share one more poem, but first I'm, I'm going to ask you, you know, what are you working on now? We, we always, (laughs) we're always working on something. What are you doing? Well, currently I am working on doing a sequence of glosas and what I should be doing is, writing some essays <laughs> but I apparently have a procrastination disorder so um <laughs> I'm writing a sequence of glosses okay well let me read uh, the first two poems from omen calla lilies okay omen calla lilies 
And I should have known, having seen them in grandmother's wedding photo, the catastrophe of tradition repeating. I should have known, made other arrangements for my own bouquet when I ordered the water, glass, and paper. I should have ordered acorns, arbutus, and cactus. Thee only do I love, oh. I should have paid attention to my own singing, my car karaoke wisdom. And if you don't love me now, you will never love me again. And I tried. I took you to the restaurant with the open fire kitchen and the smoking meat. I sat you in the hot seat bar and I said, I need this, I need this, a list. No, no, I know I was specific, I'm sure of it. I tried to be a good communicator. I said, I need you to love me. And you said like Popeye, I am what I am. You said no. I asked you to love me and you said no. You didn't say no with one syllable. You took many more, pantomimed when necessary, acted it out one complacency at a time. But I couldn't imagine Stevie Nicks fucking Popeye, so I ordered more champagne. Mm. So powerful. <clears throat> and what, you know, one complacency at a time. The line that you read about. I should have ordered acorns and arbutus and cactus. What a telling line that is right there. Wow. Thank you for your gift of reading these poems, sharing these with us. Thank you for the book. I think it is an imperative book. I really, truly do. I think this book shares a life with us that um, is a gift to, to anyone who... Um, takes the time to read it. I encourage people to go and get the book, <laughs> The Bad Wife by Michelin Mailer uh, through the U of A Press. They're a great publisher. They do really tremendous things in the city. So thanks Micheline for joining us um, and for being uh, like such a force in poetry in this province. And we're really lucky to have you. Thank you, Rayanne. I feel the same way about you. Thank you so much for all of your work. You do so much promotion and helping other authors. You're a true mentor in this province as well. Just uh, all my grace and gratitude to you. Uh, thanks for saying that. That's appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good afternoon, Micheline.